Chapter 29 of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter 29 Such emotions, disasters, anxieties, troubles, shocks, and alternations of hope and despair were too much for Captain Antifer. Even the constitution of a coasting captain has its limits and as soon as Jules' much-harassed uncle reached the hotel, he took to his bed. He was attacked by fever, a violent fever, with delirium, the consequences of which might be serious. What deceptive illusions haunted him? This campaign interrupted just at the moment when it promised to end successfully. The uselessness of further search, this enormous treasure in which they would never know the position, this third island lost in some unknown sea, the only document that can give its exact position destroyed, burned by this abominable minister. This latitude, which not even torture would make him disclose, and which he had voluntarily and criminally forgotten. Yes, it was to be feared that Antifer's much-troubled mind would be unable to resist this last blow. And the doctor called in, in haste, gave it as his opinion that there was every likelihood of the patient going mad. Every care was taken of him. His friend Tregamine and his nephew Jewel would not leave him for a moment, and, if he recovered, would be entitled to his warmest gratitude. As soon as he returned to the hotel, Jewel had informed Ben Omar, and through him Saluk learned all about Mr. Turkamel's refusal. The fury of the false Nazim could be imagined, but this time there was no outward manifestation of his anger. He kept it to himself, hoping that the secret which Anifer could not discover might be discovered by himself and utilized for his sole advantage. This was the object on which he concentrated his attention, and during that day, and the subsequent days, he was not seen at the hotel. When the bargeman heard what had happened, he remarked, I think the matter is buried at last. I think so too, said Jewel. It seems impossible to get anything out of this obstinate fanatic. It is rather funny, though, to take millions to a minister and find him refuse them. Take millions, exclaimed the young captain, shaking his head. You do not believe in them, Jewel? You may be wrong. How you have changed. Since the finding of those diamonds. I do not say that the millions are on the third island, but they may be there. Unfortunately, if this clergyman will not listen to anything, we shall never know. Well, no, Mr. Tregamane, and in spite of the two diamonds at Mayumba, Nothing will prevent my thinking that the Pasha has a huge hoax in store for us. In that case, your poor uncle will suffer. What we have to do now is to get him well. Let us hope his head will stand it. When we have set him on his feet again, and he is strong enough to travel, he will, I think, agree to return to France, and resume his former quiet life. Ah, said Jules, would we were only in the house in the Rue des Hautes and you near our little Enigate, my boy. By the way, did you think of writing to her? I wrote this morning, and said I thought we might now talk of coming home. A few days elapsed. The patient had become no worse. The fever had decreased, but the doctor was uneasy as to the mental state of his patient. Antifer, though his head was weak, was able to recognize Tregamane and Jewel, and his future brother-in-law. Brother-in-law? Between ourselves, if any lady was in danger of remaining single, 
Was it not Talisman Zambuco, now on the confines of fifty, and waiting, not without impatience, for the appearance of her promised husband? No treasure, no husband, for one was the complement of the other. From all which, it resulted that neither the bargeman nor Jewel could leave the hotel. Antifer was always asking for them. Day and night he kept them in his room, listening to his complaints, his recriminations, and above all, his menaces against the horrible minister. He spoke of nothing else than going to law with him. The judges would know how to make him speak. He could not keep silent when it meant keeping four millions out of circulation. He would be punished most severely, most terribly, might even be hanged, etc., etc. From morning to night, Antifer continued in this tone. Trigamine and Jewel took it in turns to be with him, except when some violent crisis required them both to be present. The patient would have got up, rushed out of his room, run away to the minister, and blown out his brains if the bargeman's strong hand had not kept him down. Although he greatly desired to visit the superb city of Edinburgh, Tregomain had to give up the idea. Later on, when his friend was on the road to recovery, he would make up for it. He would visit the palace of Holyrood, the ancient residence of the Scottish kings. He would stroll along the cannon gate to the castle, firmly planted on its rock, and see the little room in which the child came into the world, who was to become James VI of Scotland, and James I of England. He would make the ascent of Arthur's seat, and enjoy the view from its summit. Soon, a rumor arose, calculated to greatly increase Mr. Turkemel's already considerable popularity. It was reputed that the celebrated preacher had, in conformity with his expressed opinions, just refused a very large legacy. Perhaps the minister had himself started the rumor, which was so much to his advantage. At any rate, there was an immense crowd to hear his next sermon. This time, for a very good reason, Captain Antifer and his companions were not present. But behind one of the columns in the nave, there might have been recognized a foreigner whom nobody knew, of from thirty to thirty-five years of age, with black hair and beard, hard-featured, and of any but prepossessing appearance. Did he understand the language in which the minister spoke? We cannot say that he did. Standing hidden in the shade, he watched the preacher narrowly. His gleaming eyes never lost sight of him for a moment. The man remained in this attitude until the close of the sermon and, when the last words were spoken, made his way through the crowd toward the minister. Did he intend to follow him from the church to his house in the Canongate? It would seem like it, from the vigor with which he used his elbows on the steps of the porch. That evening, Mr. Turkemel did not return alone. A small crowd accompanied him. The mysterious man was one of them, but did not join in their expressions of enthusiasm. On reaching his house, the popular orator ascended some of the outer steps, and addressed the crowd, and then retired, without noticing that an intruder was at his heels. The crowd slowly dispersed, and when the minister mounted the narrow staircase leading to the third floor, the unknown followed him as stealthily as a cat. The minister reached the landing, entered his room, and shut the door. The other stopped on the landing, cowered down in a dark corner, and waited. And then what happened? Next morning, the people in the house were surprised at not seeing the minister go out early as usual. They did not see him all the morning. Several visitors called and knocked at the door in vain. This appears so suspicious that in the afternoon, one of the lodgers gave information to the police. 
The police came to the house, mounted the staircase, knocked at the door, and as they received no reply, broke it in, with that push from the shoulder peculiar to the officers of the force. What a spectacle! Someone had evidently picked the lock of the door, entered the room, and ransacked it from top to bottom. The cupboard was open and emptied of the few clothes it contained, which had been thrown on the ground. The table was upset. The lamp lay in a corner. Books and papers were scattered all over the floor, and near the bed, half-stripped, pinioned and gagged, was Mr. Turkamel. The police quickly set him free. He was only just breathing. He had quite lost consciousness. Since when? He alone could say, if he recovered. He was rubbed energetically. There was no need to take his clothes off, for he was almost naked. His shirt was torn from his back. His chest and shoulders were bare. The policeman who began to rub him could not restrain an exclamation of surprise. On Mr. Turkamel's left shoulder, some figures and a letter had been tattooed. The tattoo marks were legible enough, brown in color, on the minister's white skin. And this was the inscription, 77 degrees, 19 minutes north. As may be supposed, this was the much-sought-for latitude. The minister's father, to prevent it being lost, had evidently had it tattooed on his son's shoulder when he was young, as if he had inscribed it in a notebook. A notebook might be lost, but not a shoulder. Thus it was that, although he had really burned the letter of Kamlik Pasha addressed to his father, the minister possessed this inscription so strangely placed, an inscription he had never had the curiosity to read with the aid of a looking-glass. But undoubtedly, the rascal who had entered the room while the minister was asleep had read it. The minister had found him ransacking his cupboard and looking over his papers. In vain had he struggled. After binding him and gagging him, the scoundrel had fled, leaving him half suffocated. Such were the details given by Mr. Turkamel, as soon as a doctor, summoned in haste, had restored him to consciousness. He related all that had passed. In his opinion, the sole object of the assault was to wrest from him the secret of the island of the millions he refused to disclose. The scoundrel, then, had found it out while struggling with him, and with regard to this, he spoke of the visit he had received from the two Frenchmen and a Maltese, come to Edinburgh to interrogate him regarding the legacy of Camelot Pasha. Here was a clue for the police, who began their inquiries immediately. Two hours afterwards, they discovered that the foreigners in question were at Gibbs Royal Hotel. And it was fortunate for Captain Antifer, Zambuco, Tregamine, Jewel, and Ben Omar that they could prove an incontestable alibi. Antifer had not left his bed. Jewel and the bargeman had not left his room. Zambuco and the notary had not been away from the hotel. And none of them answered to the description given by the minister. But there was Saouk. Saouk was the man. He it was who had gone to get the secret from Mr. Turkamel. And now, thanks to the figures he had found on that gentleman's back, he was master of the situation. He knew the longitude mentioned in the document found on the island in Mayuma Bay, and thus possessed the necessary elements for determining the position of the new island. Unfortunate Antifer, it needed but this last blow to drive him mad. In fact, after the description given in the newspapers, Captain Antifer, Zambuco, Tregamine and Jewel had no doubt but that it was Nazim, this clerk of Ben Omar, with whom Mr. Turkamel had had to do. And when they learned that he had disappeared, they took it for granted that he had seen the figures that had been tattooed, and that he had started for the new island to take possession of the treasure.
The least astonished of the party was Jewel, whose suspicions with regard to Nazim we know, and next to him, Tregamane, to whom the young captain had communicated his suspicions. The rage of Antifer and Zambuco was extreme, and it found a victim in the person of Ben Omar. We need scarcely say that Ben Omar was more certain than anybody of the guilt of Sauk. And how could it be otherwise, knowing as he did his intentions, and that he was the sort of man who would recoil at nothing, not even at crime? What a scene it was to which the notary had to submit. Jewel fetched him to the sick room. Ill as he might have been, Antifer was not the man to remain ill under such circumstances. If, as the doctor said, he was suffering from bilious fever, here was a splendid opportunity for him to relieve himself of his bile and bring about his own recovery. We really cannot describe the way in which the unfortunate notary was treated. He was told, to begin with, that the assault on the minister and the robbery, yes, you miserable Omar, the robbery, was the work of Nazim. What, is that the way you choose the clerks in your office? Is this the sort of man that you bring to assist you as an executor? A nice sort of rascal scoundrel, villain, to thrust upon us. And now this wretch, this unscrupulous wretch, had fled with the position of island number three, and he would get hold of Kamalik Pasha's millions, and it would be impossible to lay hands on him. Ah, Sauk, Sauk. The name escaped the overwhelmed notary. All Jules' suspicions were confirmed. Nazim was not Nazim. He was Sauk, the son of Murad, disinherited by Kamalik for the benefit of the legatees. What? exclaimed Jewel. It was Sauk? Ben Omar would have recalled the name if he could. His face, his terror, his dejection showed only too clearly that Jewel was not mistaken. Sauk, roared Antifer, jumping out of bed with a bound. And with a tremendous kick, he laid the notary flat on his back. This kick, with the broadside of abuse that followed it, was a real relief to Captain Antifer, and when Ben Omar, with his shoulders up and his stomach in, tottered out of the room, he felt considerably better. One thing more completed the cure, and that was the news that appeared in one of the newspapers a day or two afterwards. We know of what reporters and interviewers are capable. Of everything, it must be admitted. At this period, they had begun to intervene in public and private affairs with a vigor and audacity that had made them a new power in the world. One of them had been clever enough to obtain an interview with regard to the tattoo marks with which Mr. Turkemel's father had illustrated his son's left shoulder. He made a drawing of it, and this drawing appeared next day in a journal, the circulation of which, on that occasion, was so phenomenal that in a short time the whole world knew of the famous latitude. 17 degrees, 19 minutes north. The public were so much the wiser, for before they could solve the treasure problem, as it was called, they required the other element of the position, namely, the longitude. But Antifer had this longitude, and so had Sauk for that matter. And when Joel brought him the newspaper in question, and he saw the drawing, he jumped out of bed, he put on his clothes, he was cured as never a patient had been cured before. Joel, have you bought another atlas? Yes, uncle. The longitude of the third island is 15 degrees 11 minutes east, is it not? Yes, uncle. The latitude tattooed on the minister's shoulder is 17 degrees, 19 minutes north, is it not? Yes, uncle. Well, see where island number three ought to be. Jewel took the atlas, 
opened up the map of the Arctic regions, applied the compasses, and remarked, Spitzenbergen, the southern end of the large island. Spitzenbergen? What? Was it in this northern region that Kamalik had chosen an island for his millions? Was this the last island? Let us go, said Antifer, this very day, if we could find a ship ready. Uncle, exclaimed Jewel, we must not let this miserable Sioux get there before us. You are right, my friend, said the bargeman. Let us go, repeated Antifer imperiously, and he added, Go and tell that fool of a notary, for Kamalik Pasha wanted him to be present at the discovery of the treasure. They had to bow to his will, supported as it was by the will of Zambuco. Well, said Jewel, at any rate, it is lucky that this joker of a Pasha did not send us to the Antipodes. End of chapter 29